Welcome back, everybody, to The Circle Opens. Thank you for listening to my special episode of the podcast and my review of Blank Page, the third episode of The Stand from CBS All Access. After I review this episode, I am going to read a few emails that I got about the podcast and the miniseries itself, so be sure to stick around. I love hearing what other fans are thinking, good and bad. And I appreciate everybody who reached out to chat with me about The Stand. Obviously, as with before, there will be spoilers regarding the episode. So if you've not yet seen this episode, blank page, please stop the podcast, go watch it, and come back. The synopsis of blank page from Wikipedia reads... As a child, Nadine used a planchette and made contact with Flag, who promised to make her his queen. After Captain Trips, Nadine discovers Joe, and the two of them run into Larry, who has been following messages left behind by Harold. He reluctantly brings them along with him, and he bonds with Joe. Stu encounters Franny and Harold, with the latter distrustful of him. He parts ways with them and meets Glenn Bateman, who has painted Mother Abigail, whom the two have had visions of, as well as a very pregnant Franny. Nick Andros, a deaf-mute temp worker, is attacked in a bar and loses his eye. Flag beckons him, but he resists and instead follows Mother Abigail's directions. Later, he meets Tom Cullen, a man with learning disabilities. Months later, Heck Drogan escapes Las Vegas and ends up in Boulder, where Mother Abigail and her committee, consisting of Stu, Fran, Larry, Ray, Glenn, and Nick, learn that he is a messenger from Flag, warning them of his impending rise. Nadine uses the planchette again to contact Flag, who orders her to kill Mother Abigail and the committee by seducing Harold. So let me start out by saying that this was probably my favorite episode so far. I am noticing that they are keeping the characters and the basic journey of the stand, but they are definitely evolving and creating their own path. And by they, I mean the writers and producers. You can see that in the way that they've changed some of the characters' backgrounds, uh, like Larry, having lived in L.A. in the book, struck a big with one hit and then had to flee back to New York after blowing his money on parties and drugs. And in the series, he's already in New York. And rather than have Wayne Stuckey be the friend who sets him straight, Wayne is out to hurt Larry. For essentially, it's implied that Larry stole, baby, can you dig your man? And in this episode, we officially meet Nick Andros. He's still a drifter, but after he's beaten up by who I assume is Ray Booth and his goons, He wakes up in a hospital where Ray is chained to another bed, dying of Captain Trips. Of course, in the book, we meet Sheriff Baker and Doc Soames because Nick wakes up in a jailhouse. And Ray doesn't show up in the book until uh, everybody's basically dead and he's also dying and wants to take Nick out with him. And of course, that is how Nick loses his eye, uh, where Ray gouges his eye and blinds him. And in the process, Nick is able to shoot Ray and save his own life. I did notice that in the series, they did have Nick recognize the ring. That's how he knew who the guy was in the novel to tell Sheriff Baker he had this LSU championship. I don't want to say championship. I'm thinking football. LSU class ring, I guess. But they kept that particular observation in the series, and I'm not sure if it was just so he knew who the guy was in the bed. 
the hospital bed. He was able to put two and two together. I guess if he's getting beat up, he might not see the guy's face all that great. Um, But they did leave that little detail in there. And there was a police officer dead in the same hospital room as Ray in the miniseries episode. Um, So they did change some of Nick's background there. And again, that's a little disappointing. It would have been nice to see Sheriff Baker and his wife, Janie. I really enjoyed them in the book. But given how the timeline is working for the stands and how they're kind of jumping back and forth and changing some things, I'm understanding that there are going to be smaller aspects of the book that just do not fit in the nine episodes. Sorry, you probably just heard my daughter in the background there. (laughs) So a big, big change here is how Nick meets Tom Cullen in the hospital, because Rather than Nick leaving Shoyo and traveling through Oklahoma, where he ends up meeting Tom, I guess I could say by chance or by fate, whichever, Tom actually shows up in the hospital where Nick woke up after his beating. Tom explains to Nick after a very humorous scene of Nick trying to explain to Tom that he cannot hear him or talk that Mother Abigail told Tom that Nick would be there. Mother Abigail is obviously continuing in these people's dreams, except she's she's a little bit more playing puppet master, telling Tom to find Nick. And we don't really know where Tom came from at this point. I'm assuming that he didn't come all the way from Oklahoma to find Nick, but maybe he did. Who knows? And I appreciated Tom's portrayal here. Um, I thought I know that some people had some reservations about Tom. But I'm glad that they explained his disability rather than just making him come across as like an all shucks kid like adult. I thought that was it's 2020. I don't want to buy I'm not buying into the people who are complaining about PC culture. To me, PC culture um, really just means, you know, you're treating other people with the same kind of respect that you would want them to treat you with, regardless of your race or your religion or any anything that defines who you are should be treated with respect. And that includes developmental disabilities. Obviously, they are not going to be using the R word in a 2020 miniseries that takes place in 2020. And it would be really difficult to not explain how Tom came to be how he is. So I liked his portrayal. I thought Brad Henke did a great job as Tom. He just had that likability about him. I enjoyed seeing Nick and Tom meet because Nick and Tom's friendship um, is probably my favorite friendship in the book, you know, right alongside Stu and Glenn's. So this was um, a really pleasant scene to watch. I thought Henry Zaga as Nick is doing a fantastic job. I wasn't really sure anybody would be able to top Owen Teague as Harold, who continues to be fabulous. But Henry Zaga did a really great, really great job. I love Nick. He's my second favorite character. I keep saying that every time I talk about him. But I think that Henry really embodied Nick, his frustrations, his hope, his scene with Flag. I'm getting ahead of myself, but his scene with Flag and Mother Abigail both really show who this character is. You almost don't need to know anything about him prior to Captain Trips, because you're seeing the kind of person that he is, and he only continues to grow. Nick is just a really strong character. 
I'm really excited for this um, actor, Henry, playing Nick. I can't wait to see some more of his involvement in the committee and obviously other um, fairly important plot details. I'm not sure how I feel about Mother Abigail. I like her scenes with Henry Zaga. I liked her scene with Nick. And I really like that Ralph slash Ray Brentner is still by her side because Ralph was so loyal to Mother Abigail in the book and she meant so much to Ralph. So I see that kind of relationship in the miniseries as well, which I appreciate. But this whole thing about, you know, I keep saying Henry, Nick being Mother Abigail's voice and refusing to talk to people that, uh, you know, making Glenn, telling Glenn he's got to go through Nick to talk to her, et cetera. That just, I don't know, that kind of rubs me the wrong way because I don't see Mother Abigail being like that. She was always very, I mean, she had her people that she entrusted with things, the committee, et cetera. She knew Nick was, God had touched Nick's heart. She knew Nick was going to be important, but I don't know that I like necessarily that that kind of dismisses the other committee members. In any case, again, it's only the third episode, so I'm going to see how they handle that going forward. And we also meet Glenn. And in the book, obviously, Stu meets Glenn first. And then after he leaves Glenn, who opts not to go with Stu um, on his journey at the moment, he, he meets Fran and Harold. But here, he meets Harold and Fran first, and they he can't convince Harold to travel together. Very different from the book. I did enjoy Harold and Stu's, I don't want to say face-off. The encounter was very interesting. I think this is a very interesting <laughs> threesome, I guess. Um, I liked the chemistry that Stu, James Marston, has with Odessa Young as Fran. That scene after Harold storms off was, it. there wasn't much, but you see that understanding there. And you know that something more happens between them, obviously. So... I want to see how um, I'm excited to see how he finds Fran and Harold again. I, I assume that they find each other to travel because it seems like this next episode, episode four, the House of the Dead, we're going to be getting the traveling zoo, quote unquote, uh, with Dana Jurgens, etc. And I'm pretty sure that Stu and Glenn are with uh, Harold and Fran. I'm hoping I, I haven't seen any pictures of them all together, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed that they meet up again. But Glenn and Kojak, oh, I was so excited when Kojak came running through the woods. I was just, ah, it's a puppy. But Stu and Glenn was fantastic. Greg Kinnear. Greg Kinnear, you guys. I knew the moment I heard Greg Kinnear had been cast as Glenn that I was going to love him. I already do love Glenn, but Greg Kinnear is such a fantastic actor. I love everything he's been in. And he brings such a touch of humor to Glenn while keeping that cynicism about him. And of course, Glenn in this this adaptation is going to smoke pot fine. I mean, I honestly, what else <laughs> what else are you going to do at the end of the world? But I could gush in an entire episode too about Kojak, but I'll save that for later. My husband is watching this with me. He doesn't know anything about the book. He doesn't know anything about the series. He doesn't even know who lives and dies. I've never told him because I keep, I've for 18 years, I've hoped that he would eventually read it. So I never want to spoil him. And he had so many questions about Kojak and was he the last dog? Is, is there something special about him? So I'm kind of trying to not spoil what's ha- going to happen with Kojak, who I adore. So I will save all of the gushing of Kojak for later. But 
Glenn's scenes with Stu were so great. They had a nice banter, a great chemistry together. And I did feel my inner fangirl swell with happiness when Glenn called Stu East Texas, because that's his nickname for Stu. I just, you know, despite these changes, they're whole, they're giving us so many small moments from the book that bring you back into the into the text when Glenn is talking. It's a little, it's an adapt. It's it's not the whole speech about show me a man and a woman alone and I'll show you a saint. It's they're adding that they're changing things, but they're giving us things. The ring that Nick recognizes on Ray Boo's hand, the mother shouter uh, while, you know, Lloyd was in prison, the monster shouter, the man who wants to jerk off on home base in Yankee Stadium. These are small details that they really didn't have to include if they didn't want to, but they did. And the, those of us who have read this book and read this book multiple times recognize these things immediately. And no matter how you're feeling about this so far, you have to admit that there's just so much joy that comes from hearing and seeing those moments that you immediately recognize from this amazing book. I was withholding some of my judgment on Nadine until I saw more of her character. And this episode does set a lot of things in motion, including Nadine's order from Flag to find Harold. I liked the flashback to a very young Nadine in the planchette. Obviously, in the book, she's in college, I believe. But I'm I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about Nadine in this adaptation. She is such a conflicted character. You know, she has feelings for Larry. She's not sure that she wants to go west, but she's not sure she can stay in Boulder she has moments back and forth where she can make a different choice and choose something different. Although it seems like she's been faded from childhood to be with Flag. And but here it just seems like she's pretty set on going to Flag. She wants to be with him and of course in the book she does have those sexualized desires for him, but he also repulses her in a way. So I would like to see more of that conflict because I think that's what makes her so interesting is she's not black or white. She's somewhere in between, kind of like Harold before he lets his hatred take over. So again, I think I'm just going to have to wait and see a little bit more of her in the next episode or two, especially when she's with Harold. That That's a um, couple that is a situation that I'm excited to see how they handle it. Also, I thought little Joe is adorable. He continues to uh, make me go, oh, <laughs> every time he's on, especially when he's with his guitar, when he was hiding under his bed, it was very sweet. And him knowing that something is not right with Nadine, definitely not being right with Harold. I like that they're keeping Joe with that little bit of the shine in him. Like he's able to recognize and sense these things about people. And that's why I think maybe he, you know, he Nadine hadn't changed for the worse yet when he met Nadine because he saw her as Nadine mom and he trusted her and he did not trust Harold right off the bat. And there's a reason for that. So I think as the series progresses and Nadine's allegiances change, that we'll see more of Joe recognizing that. I also have to give a quick shout out and I never know how to say his name. Eon, Eon Bailey. I forget. He plays Teddy Wysick. He is a great character actor. I've seen him in a lot of stuff, loved him in Band of Brothers. And I just, I really do like his friendship with Harold, knowing what's coming. It, they just, they have a really nice back and forth. And you can tell 
Teddy really cares about Harold. He sees him as a friend. Harold sees Teddy as a friend. And it kind of shows what Harold could have if he just lets go of all that resentment and hate towards Stu and Fran and the committee. And I like that they're building this friendship because Teddy had a smaller part in the book. And I like that they're building this friendship in the series because I think that kind of raises the stakes a little bit more for Harold as well. So, yes, I think that this was a solid episode. And so far, I think most of the actors have a very firm grip on who their characters are supposed to be. I love the music. The soundtrack of the series has been fantastic. And while I know that some people are still annoyed with the timeline jumping, I've gotten used to it. It doesn't bother me that much. I'm not downplaying anybody else's irritation or annoyance with it. I get it. But I think that while it does lose some of the tension of the buildup, I really, really do like the back and forth. I'm not sure. Maybe I Obviously, I think I'm in the minority, but I do like this nonlinear storytelling that they're giving us. I think after the first episode, once I realized that this is not a, you know, a direct adaptation out of the book, I was able to kind of let go of those expectations and just enjoy having an adaptation of The Stand, enjoying what they're bringing to it in 2020 slash 2021, how they're modernizing it and changing it. And, and, you know, I think it's a smart thing to tell the story in a different way than the 91st series did, or even the Marvel adaptation that was very, very true to the book. Obviously, it left some things out and changed some things. But some of the changes in this series, I'm not terribly fond of, as I've mentioned in my past review episodes. They're not, but they're not so huge that I've been put off from wanting to watch the rest or hating it or wanting to just hate watch it. I know a lot of people who just want to watch the series and hate it. And that's fine. Everyone can do whatever makes them happy. But I think the biggest, I mean, for me, the biggest omission of the book so far has been the Lincoln Tunnel. That's been my biggest disappointment. But it's not a game changer for me. It's not something that I'm going to sit down and say, I'm giving this series a D or an F because they didn't include my favorite scene. It's fine. I like a lot of the additions and I do like some of the changes. And in my opinion, a lot of the changes really work. I feel like we're getting the foundation of the novel, but getting a fresher story. If that makes sense, maybe that's blasphemy to some of you. I apologize. It's taking place in 2020. So I think it's important that it doesn't feel dated. I think the only way to do a true and faithful adaptation of The Stand is to have it be several seasons, and that's not an option here. That's not going to happen. So you got to take what you can get, and I'm enjoying so much what they're giving us. So that is my review of Blank Page. I know it's short, but again, it's only me right now, so I can only banter with myself for so long. I do want to read a few emails that I received from fans. Um, I appreciate everybody. If you want to email me about Blank Page or maybe the next episode or anything so far that you've enjoyed or hated, the circle closes at gmail.com. Please just email me. It's really hard for me to keep up with all the comments and stuff being sent to me on Instagram and Twitter just because my life is chaos and there are some days I don't get to check social media at all. So if you want to talk about the stand, um, please, please email me at the circle closes at gmail.com. So my first email is from Jamie. And he says that as a huge fan of The Stand, it's a book I reread once a year, every year, and your epic podcast, which I now intend to dive right back into, 
And I am also a huge fan of the stand Marvel comic Omnibus, which is now my second favorite adaptation of King's epic masterpiece. I couldn't wait to see how they would tackle it, and I was not disappointed. From the great references to the book, Fran's Cherry Pie, who is Strawberry Rhubarb, <laughs> that horrifying gurgle when Franny turns her father's rotting body over to the Easter eggs, Dairy Point being a store in Maine to Cemetery Dance Publications rejecting Harold's writing, the acting was first class. Odessa Young and Owen Teague have totally done Harold and Franny justice. Overall, M-O-O-N, that spells bring on the rest of the series. Many thanks and keep up the great work, Jamie. Thank you, Jamie, for your email. I know that we chat a lot on Twitter. I appreciate it very much. I do agree with you that I think, you know, Odessa Young gets kind of lost in the discussion because Owen Teague, I think, really stole the show the first episode and then Henry Zaga. I think Odessa Young is doing a great job as Fran. I explained this to my husband the other day after we finished watching Blank Page that Fran, Fran's portrayal in the book, she's very sweet, but she has she is flawed. OK, she's not perfect. She has moments where you just kind of cringe and you wonder why. And she does cry a lot, <laughs> but she's strong. And I don't understand the hate that Fran gets from fans. I think she's a strong female character. I like her a lot. I'm glad she stands her ground and she speaks up. And I think Odessa Young really embodies that character. You know, in the 94 series, it was Molly Ringwald, who I felt just played Fran very sweet, very passive. Occasionally, she'll say something or freak out, but... I just I didn't get a sense of Fran Goldsberg, Goldsberg, God, Fran Goldsmith from Molly Ringwald. And I really get Fran from Odessa Young. So I think this was really perfect casting. I also got a few emails from a constant reader named Rob, and I'm going to read two of them. The first one he sent me, um, he wrote, my name is Rob. I'm not going to say where you live, Rob. I'm just, just going to omit that part because it's not my place to do that. So <laughs> he writes, on March 13th, I started working from home because of COVID-19. I started walking in the morning and made that a daily thing, sometimes walking for over an hour. I found your podcast and listened to the whole thing while walking in the morning, and I'm now caught up. I'll start reading along with everyone else now and be on the same page with you. I have read The Stand before, so I decided just to listen along until I got caught up on the podcast. I found a copy of The Stand DVD in Walmart for $5, the Mick Garris TV thingy, and I bought it and watched it. That was back in January. After I watched it, the whole COVID-19 thing, COVID thing happened. It was like I caused it to happen. Not really. Then the new reboot of Pet Cemetery came on Amazon Prime Video, and I checked it out. Right after that, my dog passed away. Side note, I'm very sorry about your dog. I've lost three dogs um, in my lifetime, and it's never easy. Back to Rob. Now I'm trying to lose weight. Should I read thinner? Probably not. Anyway, I'll probably write more to you in the future. Thank you for all your hard work. It is much appreciated, Rob. Thank you so much, Rob. I appreciate um, your email. I appreciate that you listen to the podcast on your walks. Uh, it's so great to know that my voice is in someone's ear somewhere. <laughs> and I hope that you did enjoy the podcast. And I also have Rob's notes from episode three. Since I just reviewed episode three, I thought this would be a great email to read from Rob. Rob says, the overwhelming feeling that this is a new independent strong work is still with me. I'm no longer comparing the earlier 1994 work. Not too hung up about the novel either. Enjoying thinking of the possibilities of where this will take me. 
parentheses us. Including some more backstory on Nadine and the Ouija board stuff from the novel is interesting. Audiences are more open to that kind of stuff now, I think, than in 94. As Stu and Larry were walking down the road with hunting rifles, I thought of The Walking Dead. I think audiences of horror, especially mass market horror that is delivered on TV, are more hardened than ever. That's due to The Walking Dead for sure. Especially from season five, all the cannibalism. Collectively, we will never be the same. The show seems to get that. The music playing while Nadine is looking in the mirror and walking around her new home is super badass. I had no idea what it is, but it's new and modern and perfect. Every song can't be Black Sabbath. Still upset about Heather Graham's character dying so soon, I need to let it go. As I'm watching the ultrasound scene, my thoughts go back to who the, I'm going to say this word wrong because I'm stupid, but a synchronous timeline (laughs) might be real confusing to the audience members who haven't either read the book or watch the 94 series, McGarris version. After I wrote this, they showed two title cards, one saying something like four months earlier and another three months earlier, so maybe it's not too confusing. Greg Kinnear is great as Glenn Bateman. Just to hear that voice, it brings life to the character. Didn't take long to get right to the philosophical discussions with Glenn. Smoking weed? Probably. A couple of things about how Nick is fleshing out as a character. First of all, he was approached by Flag and offered a high position, then Mother Abigail gave a similar offer. This never happened in the novel or earlier adaptation that I'm aware of, so it's interesting to note. Now we add Mother Abigail saying that Nick was her spokesperson, literally a spokesperson. She doesn't want anyone else, anyone talking to her. Talk to Nick. She's not going to say anything. Listen to Nick. Where are they going with this? Whippy Goldberg's acting is atrocious. I think I could find a better actor at my local community theater. Okay, that wasn't very nice. Probably overreacting. The walking with the cane was almost comical. All the other actors are so good, though. The guy who survived crucifixion and gave the message, I kind of felt a little detached. Maybe the feeling was that they were taking too many liberties with the story, but he was useful for exposition. We learned about the crucifixion of people, and what was that about slaves? Did he say slaves? What the fuck? Maybe a little betrayal with such a departure. Not sure. Don't mean to be an old curmudgeon. That's all I have for episode three. Rob. Thanks, Rob, for that email and the other ones that you sent. Um, I am still on the fence about Whoopi. I don't know that I've seen her enough as Mother Abigail. I did enjoy her scene with Henry Zaga as Nick. And I think in the book, Nick does dream of Flag. He does offer him his voice back. He tells him he can fix him in the book. And Nick is on top of a mountain. I remember that. And it's a dream. And I'm pretty sure it was during his stint while he was trying to take care of the three sick prisoners. But Flag does offer him his voice. And Nick does not want it. And I'm pretty sure that's when Flag or Nick... Flag either pushes or Nick falls from the mountain, and that's when he finds himself in corn. He wakes up, and then he dreams of Mother Abigail. Obviously, Mother Abigail, I do not believe, offers him any kind of, you know, high position or whatever it was, but he trusts her. He gets the sense that Mother Abigail is good, and he wants to go see her. So he does reject Flag in the book. So they did kind of stick to that was kind of a faithful, you know, scene with them. Obviously, they expanded it and did their own thing with it, but it did happen in the book. So I think that was meant to show the kind of character that Nick has. 
As for the crucifixion, the Las Vegas man, um, according to Wikipedia, that was Heck Drogan. Remember, Heck Drogan in the book obviously got crucified for doing drugs and getting caught. I'm the, the way that he drove to Boulder with those injuries, I'm not sure that he would have made it that far. But maybe Flag gave him a bit of magic to get him there, <laughs> I think. Um, but, you know, with having this crucifixion survivor being sent from the West to scare Boulder, Mother Abigail, and the others, honestly, I think this was necessary. If you think about it, the entire second book of The Stand is in Boulder, on the border. That takes place in Boulder. They are trying to figure out the committee. They're rebuilding society. Harold and Nadine are, you know, their story arcs are building. Um, there's a lot of hemming and hawing about stuff. Mother Abigail, you know, talks to God about her own sin. And we don't get a lot of what's coming from Vegas. We only hear what Mother Abigail says to the committee or Nick or Stu, whoever, Ralph, about the dark man. And the brief mentions of the dark man in the committee meetings. I feel like we are obviously going to get to see Vegas um, in the series. It's not following the timeline of the book. So we know that we're going to jump ahead into into Vegas. And I'm pretty sure that in the trailer for The Stand, it showed that same guy, Heck Drogan. I'm just going to call him Heck Drogan because that's the name on Wikipedia. It could be wrong. But I'm just going to use that name. So. They, I'm pretty sure they show Heck Drogan in Vegas on his knees in front of Randall Flagg, who is touching his face. So they might actually show his situation in Vegas and what Flagg does to him to kind of, you know, ram that thought home that Flagg is not a real man. He's not someone to be trifled with. But I think that having this guy show up in, in Boulder, having him be possessed, more or less possessed by Flagg to warn Mother Abigail this is a good way to show us that Flag is watching, that while they're doing their thing in Boulder, they do have a formidable foe in the West watching them. I thought it was really well done. I thought it was an effective scene. I loved seeing the crows banging against the windows, even though I think Heck was the only one who could see it. But it's sh- including that supernatural aspect of Flag, showing that he is definitely more than a man. He's someone to be scared of. You can see that in their face, except for Mother Abigail, who just is whatever flag. So <laughs> they need to set the stage for the stand for that final showdown. I think it's smart to show it here. I think it's smart to show what they're up against rather than hearing it from Mother Abigail and God or flashing to a Vegas. You know, this is important for the people in Boulder to see how dangerous this flag really is, that he's not just a dream. He is a real, real threat. So I did not mind the scene at all. I also will add quickly that I also miss Heather Graham. I thought she was great as Rita. I really liked Rita's character. So I'm kind of sad that she obviously we knew it was going to happen. But I am sad that she's gone so quickly, just as I was sad that we lost Dr. Ellis uh, Hamish Linklater in the first episode so fast. He was a great character as well. So you can see not every addition to this series is a bad one. And I also got an email from Leah and she writes, I just wanted to say I'm a huge fan of your blog and podcast. So I just finished watching the episode kind of because I had to watch without subtitles or captions and I'm not a native speaker. So I sort of missed some parts, especially the one where Stu is talking to the general. 
Anyway, I know you seem to like Odessa pretty much, but I have to disagree with you there. I wasn't thrilled with some of the casting choices, especially Henry and Odessa, but I thought I would watch everything before jumping to conclusions. And now that I have, I still don't like her. One of the reasons I loved Franny both in the book and in the miniseries is because she was always so sweet and mature and willing to help. The true good among all the characters from Boulder, but this time she doesn't seem nice. She's trying to commit suicide was the thing that struck me out the most. Like Franny doesn't seem to be the kind of person to take her own life and didn't really seem saddened by her death's dad or the fact that everyone else is dead. She seems more bothered or angry, like if that was something to be pissed off at instead of being sad. I ended up liking Harold more than I liked her, and that is saying something as I never liked him or considered his story tragic, but this time he just seemed too nice, like he genuinely cared for Franny and was enjoying Boulder. And I also thought it was weird how quickly he changed his mind on writing about how he could be someone in the free zone and just jumped thought that he was going to kill both Franny and Stu. That just didn't seem right, but I understand it could be further explored in other episodes. I am not completely convinced of James as Stu, and I still think he and the actor who plays Larry would be better if they switched roles. James looks funnier and kinder, and Jovan looks more serious and quiet. I'm not a huge fan of the time skips either, but I guess I can get used to it, and I'm looking forward to seeing Nick and Nadine. It kind of pissed me off that the episode was just about Franny, Harold, and Stu, and didn't involve anyone else too. Let me know if you agree or disagree with some of my points and feel free to correct me if I made any grammar mistake. Leah. They, Leah, thank you. Don't worry about any mistakes. Um, I did email you back. I hope you got my email <laughs> and I appreciate your thoughts. I know that I responded to those in my email. I I do disagree about Fran being, you know, sweet and kind and mature in the book. I'm not sure that she is any of those things all the time. I think that she has her moments. I mean, just look at how she wrote about Harold in her diary. Like she, she has some not so nice moments, but she's also 21 years old. And yeah, she's a grown woman and she's having a baby. But you know, heck, I'm 40 years old. I'm, I'm 40. And I still am not the kind of person I wish I could be all the time. So I appreciate your email very much, Leah. I hope that you're enjoying the series a bit more. Now that we are three episodes in, I would love it if you would email me back and just let me know if any of your thoughts have changed on Odessa or James Estu, etc. That would be great. Thank you so much for your email. And if you, constant listener, would like to reach out and let me know what you're thinking of the series so far, good or bad, it doesn't bother me. Send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com and please make sure just to write a little note in there if it's okay if I read your email on the podcast. I know not everybody would want their name and email read, and I want to be respectful of that. So if it is okay, if I can read your email in the next episode, just uh, make sure you include that as well. I will try very hard to write you back in a um, acceptable timeline. I don't always get back to people as quickly as I would like to, but I hope that you all understand when it takes me a little bit to respond. And if you would like to follow me on social media, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr at The Circle Opens. And if you would like to keep up with all of the stand updates for the book and the miniseries, check out my blog at thecircleopens.com. I'm also reading, I started reading the Dark Tower series, you guys. I am almost finished with The Gunslinger. 
And I will be posting my review of that book on thecircleopens.com when I finish. I'm also thinking about just doing a special episode to review the book as I go through them rather than doing chapter by chapter. That would take me forever. (laughs) So I might just do a book review or maybe try to get somebody on the podcast to talk about it with me if they've read it. And I will be back on Saturday, January 9th, to talk to you guys about the next short story in Night Shift, Graveyard Shift, which is one of my favorites. So I can't wait to talk about it. So with that being said, M-O-O-N, that spells, see you on Saturday. <laughs>